like you to turn in your Bibles with me this morning to Romans chapter 12, verse 3. Romans chapter 12, verse 3. This is what it says, For through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted each a measure of faith. Now I want to tell you a very interesting fact about Romans 12.3. Okay? It comes after verse 2. And it comes right before verse 4. Now, the reason I want you to note that is because Paul has turned a corner in the book of Romans going from telling us all about who we are in Christ and telling us about the teaching and about all the good things God has done for us. In chapter 12, he turns the corner, and this is where the rubber meets the road. He says, now, because of these things, this is how your life ought to go every day. This is how you ought to live. This is how you, you, you should act. Because God has done these things for you and changed you. And so he begins chapter 12 by saying the logical response to God's work in your life is to become a living sacrifice, to give yourself to God the same way that he's given himself to you. So he begins by saying, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service of worship. And do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you can prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. He says, this, is, this makes sense. God has done so much for you, it only makes sense to give your life to him. But it's, it's a life of service. It's a life of loving God and loving people. It's a life of ministry. We use the word ministry, that's a church word. But, but ministry really means serving. It's a life of caring about other people. And so immediately he transitions into that, and in verse 4, he says, now you have, a, you have gifts. You're members of a body. You belong in a family. You have gifts and abilities that you should be sharing with each other. And he takes us right into how it is that this life of committed devotion to God results in a life of loving and serving within the church, in the community, in the family, of living lives that are selfless in the interest of God and other people. And right in between that commitment and that service, verse 2 and verse 4, Paul says, you need to have a good self-image. Now, I realize the minute I say that, you think psychology 101. Here I came to church, and I'm about to get psychology. But we all have a self-image. Every one of us here this morning has a self-image. Just like you have a worldview. You may not have written your worldview down on paper. You may not be able to articulate it, but you have one. You have a way that you view the world, the way you interpret it, understand it, kind of put it together. You have a worldview. You also have a self-image, whether you've thought about it or not. 
whether you've written it down or not, this is what I think of myself. Have you ever written an essay like that? <laughs> no, probably not. Huh? Okay, but you have one. And chances are you have a wrong self-image. Chances are it's inaccurate. And Paul says you need to have a right self-image before you can effectively serve God and serve other people, you need to have a right self-image, a biblical self-image of yourself. You need to see yourself in the right way. And there's a reason for that. If you look at the first and last line of this, Paul says, first and last line of verse 3, For through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you, and then look at the last line of the verse, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. That's kind of the bread on the sandwich here, if you can think of it that way this morning. And Paul is speaking out of his apostolic office as, as an authority. Through the grace given to me, I'm an apostle, I'm a teacher. Through the grace given to me, and, and the, the language here is not to all of you. You know, sometimes I talk to all of you, and some of you listen, and some of you don't. <laughs> And some of you listen and you say, oh, that doesn't apply to me, so I don't have to pay attention to that part. But Paul is actually singling out his audience by the choice of words he's using. He says, I want each and every one of you to listen to what I'm saying. Each one of you. I'm speaking to each of you. See the emphasis. God has given each of you a measure of faith. Now, this is not the faith like saving faith. This is not the faith like trusting God every day for your life. This is the faith that God has given you to use, to spend, to employ in serving, in loving other people. God has given you a measure of faith. We have different abilities and different gifts, but every one of us has been given a measure of faith. And the word measure here is, is, a, is a unit of measure. The other morning, I asked Rowena how to make a smoothie. I, I had my own ideas, but I happen to like her, so I wanted to make it like she makes it. And she said, well, it's easy to remember, a cup, a cup, and a cup. A cup of ice and a cup of, in my case, soy milk, and a cup of fruit a little bit of sugar, and you use a cup and a cup and a cup. The cup is a measure. So I went to the cabinet, and I got out the measuring cup. I got one cup measure out, and I followed the directions. Actually, I didn't follow the directions, because I seldom do, but I probably put more fruit. But, but anyway, at least I had the general idea. I knew where the starting point was, and I had the cup in my hand. If you're in, const if you're in construction, maybe it's a cubic yard or a foot. But it's a unit of measure. Whatever the unit is, each of you has one of them. You have one, a whole one. You have a measure of faith. Faith that you are to engage God in serving and ministering to one another. You all have it. And Paul says in order to use it rightly, you need to have a good self-image. Now look at what he says here. For through the grace given to me, I say to each and every one of you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have 
sound judgment or an accurate viewpoint. Did you catch the wording? Don't think more highly than you ought to think. There's two things implied in that statement. One of them is it's possible to go over the mark. It's possible to think more of yourself than is warranted. When we see people like that, we usually call them arrogant. You know, they're proud, they're arrogant, they're, they're full of themselves. It's possible to think too much of yourself. They're conceited. But there's another problem. Then you ought to think implies that you ought to think something of yourself. And it's possible to think too little of yourself. To have a bad self-image. A negative one. You know, we have a tendency as Christians, what we think the Bible teaches about total depravity is that we're all zeros. And we have a tendency to have that mentality. We're all zeros. The whole human race is a big zero. That's not what the Bible teaches. It's possible to have too low a view. So Paul says, I want you to have a right view of yourself. I don't want you to think too much. I don't want you to think too little. I want you to think just right. I want you to be right in the middle. Have the right understanding of who you are. And I think as we go along, it'll become clear to you why it's important that we have a good self-image in order to really love and care for other people like we need to. How do we get a good self-image? Where does it come from? Well, the first thing is, a good self-image does not come from the mirror. Okay? A lot of people get their self-image from the mirror. And the problem with that is, Things change over time. And, and you know what's interesting is sometimes people that we look at, models, movie stars, people that show up in the magazines and television, whatever, that are stunningly attractive. It's amazing how many of those people are insecure within themselves and feel like they're ugly. In fact, sometimes their, their attractiveness is an effort that they're, they're investing, trying to, to build up their self-image because inside they feel small. Now, some of them are full of themselves. Some of them believe all the stuff they say about them. But, but some of them are very insecure. But I don't mean just in physical appearance. The concept of getting your self-image from the mirror is uh, may, maybe you take pride in your personality. Maybe you take pride in your brains. Maybe you take pride in, in, in your mind. You take pride in your artistic ability. You take pride in your skill. And your self-image is all wrapped up in who you are and what you see and what you perceive. And friends, the problem with that self-image is, number one, it can be distorted because none of us think objectively. You know, we, we look at ourselves and we still we have a prejudiced opinion for good or for bad. Also, the problem is time will change that. Maybe, maybe you have an accident and you lose your skill. Maybe something happens to your mind. Maybe something happens to your looks. I hate to tell you this, but if you don't die first, you're all going to get old. It's going to happen. And if you don't get old, you're going to die young. I mean, there's, there's, either way, I mean, this, this thing is going in a, in a negative direction in a sense. And the longer you live, the more gravity has an impact on you. 
You know? I get out of the shower in the morning, man. Sometimes I want to turn the lights off. There's this big plate glass mirror right as I step out of the shower. I want to get dressed before I see myself. It's, it, it's, it's disappointing sometimes, you know. And, and if you live long enough, things are going to change. You cannot get your self-image from the mirror. It's going to be distorted. Second thing is you cannot get a good self-image from your family from your friends, from your colleagues. Most of us begin to develop our self-image from our family. The things that happen in our childhood tend to have an impact on how we think about ourselves. I was one of those precocious little kids, and I, and I started reading pretty young. I could read things when I was, I don't know, five years old or so. I was reading stuff, and and I learned phonics somehow along the way, and, and I could read the paper. When I was in, I don't know, first or second grade, I could read the newspaper. I could pronounce all the words. I had no idea what they all meant, but I could say them. You know, every time we go to a family gathering, my mother would say, come let Paul read for you. Let's let Paul read this article out of the paper, you know. And I started thinking, man, I'm hot stuff. Everybody wants to hear me read. I'm really cool, you know. I started to feel, you know, I, I'm Paul, the reader. I'm the smart guy, you know. And so I started to form an opinion of myself that was kind of inflated. <laughs> you know, because reading is not everything in life, let me tell you. But then on the other hand, I come from a family that are not risk takers. I don't take risks. And uh, you don't step out and take a chance on failure because, oh no, what if you fail? What will people think? And I'll never forget the day that I came home from high school and announced to my mother that I had put my name in the hat to try out for drum major of the band. And to give you a little background, I went to a large high school. We were state champions in marching band and in concert band. We were state champions. We were AAA school, and we were state championship. And our conductor, the paid teacher, did not conduct the band on the field. The drum major did. That, that person was responsible for the parades, the football games, the pregame, the national anthem. The drum major did all the conducting. And my mother said to me, why would you do that? You're not going to make that. You have just set yourself up for failure. What, you're going to feel like a fool. You're not going to be the drum major of the number one band in the state of Florida. Well, I, I did. I, I won the seat. I became the drum major. I found out why they give you an 18-inch tall hat. Because you need it to hold all of your head. Then I, then I really thought I was hot stuff, you know. But I, both of those kinds of attitudes shaped me. You're fantastic here, don't take any chances. You're great here, don't take any risks. Always think about what other people are going to think. You've got to be careful. You don't want to fail. And so there was this, this double message. You know, and, I, and I'm grateful, quite honestly, that, that that second one didn't stick because I've taken a lot of risk in my life. But you can't rely on your family to give you a self-image. You can't rely on your friends. You may say something one day, some faux pas. You, didn't, you don't know what you did. You just said the wrong thing, and all of a sudden, that friendship's gone. 
If you get your self-image from your job, and it, it's the thing that, that gives you your sense of who you are. You may go in one day and there's a pink slip on your desk, clean out your drawers, the security guard will escort you to the front. Then where are you? Your self-image cannot come from the people around you because that too is a fickle situation. It's going to change. You can't get your self-image by being self-conscious. A lot of people think when you talk about self-image, you're talking about self-consciousness. A good self-image, I don't think, is self-conscious. A good self-image has self out of the picture, in a sense. But many people are self-conscious, and everything they do is calculated by what other people are going to think or how they're going to react. Well, what does this person think if I do that? How will they respond? Uh, what kind of impression will this leave? Every move is calculated based on how other people are going to think about it or react to it. That's self-consciousness. And the Bible basically warns us against that. It's too absorbed with self. Maybe I don't care enough about what people think. But one of the, I think it was Abraham Lincoln who says, you cannot please all of the people all the time. You know, you can please some of the people some of the time, but you can't please all the people all the time. I'm not sure you can please all the people any of the time. There's always going to be people that you can't make happy. I don't know when I'm, when I'm speaking here on a Sunday morning, I haven't taken an exit poll, so I don't know what everybody thinks, you know. I assume if you don't like what I said, you just don't bother to tell me. But um, I'm sure, you know... I, I, I'm not overawed when people say, Pastor, that was a great sermon. Okay, ten people said that. What did the other 90 think? I don't know, you know. But, um, but I, I'm aware that you cannot be concerned about what everyone thinks. That kind of self-consciousness will tie you up in knots where you can't move. That's not a good self-image that comes from being self-aware. In fact, a good self-image is an image that, first of all, is accurate. It's, it's right. It's correct. How do you get a right self-image? If you can't get it from the mirror, and you can't get it from your family, you can't get it from your friends, you can't get it by being self-conscious and self-aware, how do you get a good self-image? Well, go back to verse 2 and recall that Paul says, don't be conformed to the world. The world relies on all of that input to give them a self-image. Don't be conformed to that, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do you get your mind renewed? You find out what God has to say, because He has the truth. And a good self-image comes from God. I don't mean He, like, drops it in. You have one, and now He gives you another one. What I'm saying is, He shapes your thinking and corrects it to bring it in line with the truth. And a good self-image is a self-image that is accurate based on God's assessment of your worth and value. And we need to see ourselves the way God sees us, to have a healthy self-image. We need to know the truth. And the first thing we need to recognize in that self-image that is accurate is that all of us have sinned. Every human being on the planet has sinned. We're all sinners. Now, when I say that, I don't mean that every person on the planet does everything bad. 
In fact, I would go so far as to say there's some good in every person on the planet. Even the terrorist that straps a bomb on and walks into a cafe in Jerusalem and blows himself up with a bunch of people may have a tender heart toward little babies, may have a caring attitude toward children in his own village. Doesn't care anything about their kids, but he's got, he's got a caring attitude toward children. It's, it's interesting that even in prison, violent criminals have kind of a ranking and a pecking order. And it's why uh, people who are convicted of, of sex crimes against children are often at risk in the general prison population because the person that would shoot you or me in a heartbeat and never think twice about it wouldn't hurt a little child. And, and they, would just, they, they would hurt the person that hurt the child. It's a kind of a warped sense of... But there's somewhere in every person, even the worst, there's a little bit of goodness. Because every one of us were made in the image of God, and that goodness in every human being is still a vestige of the reflection of his image. And so there's some of that there, but also every human being on the planet has sinned against the holy God and has failed. And our problem is we tend to compare ourselves with each other. You know, we look at that person over there and we say, well, you know, and some people are. Some people in society are investors. Some are takers. Some contribute. They're law-abiding and productive. Some are criminals. And we lock them up and have to pay for their keep. Some people are the town drunk and some are the town mayor. Sometimes they're the same. No. I didn't say that here. Don't tell our mayor. Believe me, I, this is being recorded. I, I, I don't know anything about our mayor. <laughs> That's on the internet. I know nothing about our mayor. <laughs> okay, but anyway. Where was I? <laughs> we tend to compare ourselves with ourselves. You know, and we look at those people that seem like they're doing poorly, and we say, oh, I'm better than that. Or maybe you're the person that looks at someone who's doing very well and you say, I can't be, I can never be that good. But most often we tend to look at the weaknesses in others and we kind of magnify those and we look at the weaknesses in ourselves and we sort of rationalize that. We kind of explain that away, you know. Well, that's not so bad, you know. That, that's, that's, not, that's not a big deal. Yeah, I tell a little white lie every once in a while. But it's, yeah, it's just kind of... You know, but let somebody else bend the truth, you know, and, and you're, you're right down their throat because that's them doing it. See, we compare ourselves with ourselves, and when you do that, you may find differences that you think are there. But the scripture says the thing we need to be concerned about is comparing ourselves to Jesus Christ. And when we do that, we all come up short. Every one of us. We, we fall short of that goal. And the Bible says that we are all sinners. Every one of us. We have all sinned. We have all fallen short of God's glory. We are all in that same soup. We have a rebellious nature. We have that 
that independent, autonomous, self-willed, I'm going to do it my way or die streak. We have that, that kind of self-nature that says, I don't need God. And we have a polluted stream, even in our goodness. Our motives are so mixed, the Bible says, the heart of man is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can know it? That's talking about me. I can't even know my own heart half the time. I don't know why I do the things I do sometimes. I think I do, but, but sometimes there's other stuff playing in there. Sometimes I'm aware of the fact that I'm, that I'm caught between a, a variety of goals. I have a conflict of interest, and I'm aware that I cannot make a, an entirely objective decision because I have a stake. We have a polluted stream. And that stream affects us. And the Bible says we're all sinners. In order to have a healthy self-image, you need to be aware of that. You need to know that every human being is in the same moral category. The second thing we need to realize, particularly those of us who are believers, is we need to realize, hopefully since you came to faith in Jesus Christ, you've been changing. Hopefully you've gotten some improvement. Hopefully you can look at your life over a period of time and say, you know, I used to do that, I used to do that, and now those things are gone, and I could never do this other thing, but now I do it, and, and it's a good thing. I see change in me. I see transformation. I'm not the person I used to be. And you, and you ought to see that change. There ought to be a growth in the character of Jesus Christ. There ought to be a growth... In, in goodness and righteousness. You ought to be different. If the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and gentleness and kindness and self-control, there ought to be more of that in your life today than there was five years ago, ten years ago, whenever you came to know Him. There ought to be more of that today. But friends, when you look at that increased quantity... What is the explanation? We need to recognize that all the goodness that is in me is because of God. That it is His grace. I am what I am today by the grace of God. He put His Holy Spirit within me that brought into my life the character of Jesus Christ. And as I get out of the way and He comes through more clearly, that is what you see coming through the Paul Martin ver version, but it's Christ in me Paul says, the hope of glory. So how can we take credit for what God has done? You know, if there's one thing the church does, inadvertently, we are the biggest impediment toward other people coming into a relationship with God because as soon as we begin to see this, this goodness developing, this, this new holiness developing, we begin to think, oh, I'm better now. I'm holy. I'm much better than I was before. I'm not like those sinners down there. We take on an attitude. And people can see it. And it stinks. Because you, you might not have this habit or that habit or the other, but you've got a king-sized case of pride. You need one of those 18-inch hats. 
unfortunately, as soon as we begin to get right, we have a tendency to get wrong again. If we don't have that right self-image, I am what I am today by the grace of God. And I have no business getting up on some pedestal, holding myself up and saying, Hey, everybody, I got my act together. Follow me. I ought to be able to say I've learned some things. I know where some potholes are in the road. I'll, I'll take you along and help you avoid what I've figured out. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. I'm not any better than any other person on the planet. I'm not any different. Apart from Jesus Christ, there's a little sociopath in me. There's a little Hitler in me. And there is in you too, if you're honest. We don't like to accept that. We think, well, I could never be that bad, but you just haven't had all the props knocked out from under you. Apart from God, we could go any direction. We need to remember that. That needs to be in our minds. Because I want to tell you something. Folks know when you think you're something. When you think you, you're, I, I'm it, I've got it to get. They know that. When you look down at them, did you know you cannot hide that? If you look down and condescend toward another person, did you know you can't conceal that? They can pick that up a mile off. And by the same token, they know if you love them genuinely and receive them just as they are. They know that too. They know that instinctively. The only person that could lay claim to absolute holiness on this planet was Jesus Christ. And you know what? The religious people hated him. But the sinners loved him. And it wasn't because he condoned their behavior. It was because he was approachable. He was humble. He was genuine. He truly loved them. And he was the one that could have declared he was better than anyone, because he was. But instead, he walked among us, and he received other people on a level platform and accepted them just like they were. Now, I started out by telling you that we have a wrong perception sometimes in the church. We think all people are zeros. Now I've just told you that you, you're all sinners. I'm a sinner. We don't have any righteousness of our own. The righteousness we do have is what God gave us. But let me tell you something. We are not zeros. The Bible says God made us in his image. He put within us his own life. He made us with immortality. Human beings, every human being on the planet is going to live forever. Everyone is going to live forever. It's just a matter of where. Yeah, that's right, Todd. It's a matter of where. It's not a matter of whether you're going to live forever. It's a matter of where you're going to live. We have a tendency to think, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you can have eternal life. We have a tendency to think, okay, that's eternal life. What's the other one? Just kind of vaporize. Oh, no. The other one is eternal death. Life and death, with God separated from God. One way or the other, you're going to live forever. You're valuable. In fact, you're so valuable, the Bible says God so loved the world that he gave his only son. I want to explain that to you in very practical terms this morning. 
When it says God loved the world, it's not just, again, the big mass. He loves you. He loves you. Sherry knows your name. Ryan, he knows your name. He loves you. He sees every individual. He loves you. And what does God say you're worth? Sinner that you and I are. Moral derelict that you and I may be. What does God say you're worth? God says, I love you. And I am willing to pay a price to redeem you and bring you back home to me and into my family. And the price that I'm willing to pay is the life of my son, Jesus Christ. He will go to the cross. He will shed his blood to cover your sin. He will die for you. God says, I love you so much. You are worth the cross and the death of my son to me. Friends, we are not zeros. Do not sell yourself short in that respect. You are loved by God. You have inestimable value. You are precious beyond imagination. In fact, Peter says in his letter, we are not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold. God didn't just pay for us with a pile of gold, a stack of diamonds. He says, you were redeemed with something precious. The imperishable and precious blood of Jesus Christ was the price that God paid for your life and for your soul. How valuable is that? How precious are you to God? How important and significant in His heart? So here's this amazing thing. On the one hand, I'm, I'm no better or worse than any other person on the planet. On the other hand, I have sinned and offended a holy God. On the, on the other hand, I am a person in whom the goodness and, the, and the, the righteousness in me is because the Holy Spirit is in my life and Christ is living through me and I have nothing to claim or brag about on my own. And then God says, but I love you unconditionally. I've given my son for you. I've bought you for myself. You are my own, my precious child that I want with me eternally. How valuable is that? Who am I? I'm a child of the King. I belong to God. He loves me. He knows my name. Eternity is written in my heart. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 8, if God is for you, who can be against you? <laughs> who cares what those other people think? Who cares what... If God is for you, how good is that? You know, children of wealth and privilege, some of them manage to grow up real people, but most of them grow up kind of arrogant and haughty and think the world they're used to being served and you know why that is because they are somebody we were driving yesterday up Lakeshore Drive and we were driving through Glencoe and whatever headed up toward Botanic Gardens along Sheridan Road and I saw this young fellow about 13 jogging down the road you know and I and here's these multi multi-million dollar mansions facing the lake, and I'm thinking, I wonder which one of those he came from. And I wonder what his self-image is, you know. 
uh, unless he had some very unusual training, his self-image probably is entitlement. I'm rich. I belong in a Mercedes. I deserve a mansion on the lake shore. I'm going to inherit millions. You know, people should serve me. Because they have status because of who their daddy is, who their mother is. I'm not suggesting that kind of worldly arrogance, but listen, friends. You belong to God through Jesus Christ. You're a child of God. What is that? Do you know who you are? It's not cause to go out here and act arrogantly. But it's cause to go out here and say, wow. The amazing thing is anyone out there can have that privilege. Anyone can have that privilege. God loves the whole world. And anyone can have that privilege. Our mission should be, we have discovered the living bread. We've discovered the fountain of, of living water. We should be like the beggar telling another one where they found the bread. I didn't just find a loaf. I found the whole store wide open. All I need, come with me. We are privileged and loved of God. A good self-image recognizes. I'm going to read you my last conclusion. I don't often like to read my notes, but I worked a long time on this sentence, and then two or three other people helped me with it some more, so I figure I ought to read it, get it right. A healthy biblical self-image recognizes all people as equally precious and valuable to God. Every single person on the planet, equally precious. Sees oneself as neither better nor worse than anyone else. And people know it, friends, that if you think you're better than they are, they know it. You can't hide it. So if people are reacting to you, you need to get on your knees before God and get an attitude adjustment because you've got, you're projecting the wrong thing and it comes out of the heart. And if you genuinely love people and you believe that all human beings are equal, they know that too. They instinctively know that comes out of your heart. You can't hide it. It's neither better nor worse than others. As a sinner far from God, a good self-image recognizes one's debt of gratitude for so great a salvation and believes and accepts God's forgiveness, responding in kind toward others with spontaneous and fully devoted love to God in return. Do you know who you are this morning? Do you know where you came from? Do you know how precious you are? Do you know how special you are to the heart of God? Do you know that you are what you are by His grace? If you have a good self-image, the world's not going to run over you. Because it can't touch you. 
and you're not going to run over it because you love people the way God loves them. And you will be a powerful force in this world by the Holy Spirit living through you. Father, I pray this morning that you would give us the right attitude about ourselves. Not arrogance, not groveling, mealy-mouthed, insecure, weak, kind of hiding away. Let us step up to the plate and be who we are and especially proclaim who we have become through Jesus Christ and do it with humility because you have loved us with an everlasting love and changed us forever. And we are deeply grateful. We love you, Lord. We give you praise this morning. In Jesus' name.